Whatever it is you think you want to be and do, go do it. Go take the risk. Go, if it's start a company, if it's to try to go work for somebody in another city or you want to be on TV or whatever it is, you're never going to have a better opportunity to do it right then. Hey guys, it's Chris Powers with the Fort Podcast. I'm excited today about our guest, Jason Baxter, who is my business partner here at Fort Capital. He's had a huge impact on my life and helps shape a lot of how I think about the world today. We talk about Fort Worth, the future of it, personal insights on success and growth, and his advice for young people looking to pursue their passion. Enjoy. Well, just to get started, tell everybody just a little bit about your background. Um, well, Jason Baxter. I'm uh, born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, where we do business, and I pretty much spent all of my life here. And um, I've been in real estate for about the last 20 years in some form or fashion. I am married, my wife, 20 years, and my son, who is uh, 22 years old. Well, you've been in Fort Worth forever. We met each other, I think it's going on probably five years. We met through the real estate business. Yep. Um, what, what got you into the real estate business? I know you worked at David Weekly for a while. Yep. And uh, you know, what was the opportunity you saw here at Fort? Yeah, so my real estate, uh, intro to real estate really started when I was in high school, younger, my grandmother, I remember her being in real estate, showing homes, and sort of just being in that world enough to understand that it existed, and understanding that um, what I thought was an easy way to make money. So as in in high school and that sort of thing, I just had this you know perspective of what I thought real estate was, and then uh, at that same time period, I was during the summers framing houses, putting on roofs, and doing that sort of thing. So. I had established the sort of knowledge of uh, building homes and what real estate was and selling homes. So coming out of high school, I just had this sort of uh, base knowledge of that was a way to do business. And so uh, my first real job was actually working for an engineering firm um, based in Arlington that did a lot of land surveying and subdivision development for neighborhoods. And uh, the, the biggest client that they had at the time was David Weekly Homes. So for the first five years, six years of my career, I was working on the development side, land development side, building neighborhoods, the actual infrastructure, laying it out, planning it for David Weekly Homes, um, basically as a subcontractor for them. Um, then the crash of 2007, 2008 happened. And that's when my whole world sort of changed because I realized, one, I wasn't doing what I wanted to do anyway, and it was a good time to switch careers. Um, good and bad, I thought it would be a good time to get in the worst business in the history of the world at the time, which was selling homes. <laughs> so I chose to take one of the contacts that I had at David Weekly and go get a job there. Yeah. And so during the crash, I went and spoke with one of the presidents at David Weekly here in Dallas and for some reason they chose to give me a job in home sales yeah. with zero experience and um, and in the worst housing market ever or we were just in the beginning of it and they put me in the worst neighborhood that had not sold one home in over nine months 
showed up to new homes. And what happened when you got into that neighborhood? So that's where my perspective on career growth and um, really what was possible in, the, in not just real estate industry, but in life. Um, I really had nothing to lose. The market was horrible. I had no experience starting a new company or starting with a new company. Um, so I couldn't fail. All I could do is win. And so I went into this neighborhood with no expectations other than it's got to succeed. And there was a, another sales consultant in the neighborhood who had been there for nine months and had not sold one single home. And um, I asked her, I said, what do you do every day? And she said, well, I read a lot of books. And I said, well, but no, what do you do to like get business? Like, what do you, and she's like, I just sit here and wait. Um, and so I realized that, that was not gonna work for me or I wouldn't be there long. And so um, I just didn't even think twice about it. I just started doing whatever I could think of to get people to come in. So. I started driving to businesses in the area and just going in and talking to people. I was literally handing out flyers in the neighborhood behind us, putting, I didn't even know you couldn't put letters directly in people's mailboxes. I was putting people. Uh, so I just did whatever I could and um, sent out tons of email campaigns. And we slowly started getting a little bit of traffic in the door, maybe one or two people literally per week. Yeah. And it was my third week, um, fourth weekend, third to fourth weekend. It was seven o'clock at night. I was literally locking the door to leave. And uh, a lady knocked on the door as I was literally walking to the front door to like turn the lights off. And um, it was a, an Indian lady and her daughter. And I opened the door and said, oh, well, we're closing. And she said, well, I was just gonna look real quick. And I hadn't, I only see one or two people per week. So I wasn't gonna stop her. And so I said, absolutely come in. I ended up staying with her until about nine o'clock that night. and. Before she left, we had signed the contract on her house. God. And that was the, I guess it was about the third week I was there. Um, fast forward about three or four months in, I had sold about eight homes uh, in that neighborhood and continued to fast forward David Weekly and the company started to notice that something was changing in the neighborhood compared to the rest of the country. No one was selling homes. We ended up selling out that neighborhood in about two years during 2008, 2009. We sold 74 homes. We were the number one selling neighborhood in the entire country for David wow. Weekly Homes. Um, and they took that blueprint. It was also a new type of home for David Weekly Homes. It was a, the zero lot line neighborhood. Um, and so they had never built one of those neighborhoods before. So not only was it a new product that was being successful in a down market, but it was just being successful, period. Right. Um, and so they really were focused on not just why is this neighborhood working, but what were the people doing to make it work. And so it gave me a lot of credibility to how was I able to do it and all these things because the way David Weekly worked is they really put it in the hands of the people in the neighborhood. There was right. a project manager, a sales manager, and a builder. And that team really uh, was the success of the neighborhood. And so they asked my advice to go develop another one of these neighborhoods in Las Colinas and they basically gave me the choice to do whatever I want, what type of, the, what would the product be, what would it look like and so I basically got to design the next community with the, the management at David Weekly and was given the reins to run it and so um, we did that, we went to Las Colinas, we developed uh, a neighborhood called the Villas of Asina. It was 150 plus homes, and it was pretty much the same story. 2010, 2011, it just 
we blew it out of the water. So during that time period, I realized I was doing really well in sales, but it's not what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I was really trying to get out of it from the minute. Why didn't you realize that if you were so successful? I just, you know, I knew I was being good at it because I was working harder than everybody else, but it wasn't what made me, it wasn't what I was passionate about. It wasn't what made me get out of bed every day. What made me get out of bed was the success and helping the people and seeing my team grow and, and, and that sort of thing. But the physical aspect of selling the home, watching it get through the end, it was a lot of work holding the people's hand to, to deliver the home at the end. It wasn't, I just knew I was going to be doing bigger things. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the one uh, overseeing the people doing that. Yeah. And so at least at the time, that's what I thought. And so uh, I quickly started to, work my way through the system at David Weekly and do some things to stand out even further to get promoted to uh, management or operations. And so, which had not been done before at the company, or at least in my world, it hadn't been done. Usually the way it works in home building is that a um, operations is truly done on the construction side. So you come through construction management um, as a builder, and then you go into to operations, and then you can work your way up through uh, vice president, president, that sort of thing. Uh, they really don't have a pathway in that world to go from sales into management. Sales is sales. Those inherently, they make fairly good money, so people, are they really don't want to move from those positions. They like where they are, um, and so you don't really get a lot of transition, plus the the personality type that is really good at sales is not typically the same person that is really good at operations or management. And so um, I knew just from my personality and, and the sort of testing that we did to, to join David Weekly that I didn't necessarily have the exact personality traits of the best salesperson, that it was sort of a blend. And I knew that my testing had mapped to uh, to be a good operations manager and so I took that opportunity to throw my hat in the ring and, and sort of force my way into that path and I, I got promoted uh, to run Tarrant County's urban infill and so it was a new product type where we were going to be building high density townhomes and um, uh, again a new product type and since I had done it before they trusted me to do it again and there we were off to the races. Man there's a ton to take out of that. Um... The first is that being naive when you're first getting started, you just start in this brand new uh, sales model. Like you kind of know what you're doing, but you're just like, I'm gonna do anything to be successful. Right. You didn't kind of fall victim to like, this is how everybody always does it. And I'm just gonna to wait um, that, and, and you and I talk about this all the time. Like if you're willing to put in the work and work harder than everybody else around you, it's almost inevitable that you're going to succeed. Um, and it sounds like that was a huge part, I think. So Jason does all this. He, he comes to take over Tarrant County. Fort Capital is at the time buying land in Fort Worth, a lot of urban infill stuff and a mutual friend of ours, Joseph introduced us and we had some land and we're showing Jason and David weekly to buy it. And, you know, I thought I knew a lot about land um, and the entitlement of land, which the entitlement of land is 
basically the rules and laws that govern what you can build on a piece of land from uh, the, the size of building, how tall, what type, how far to the street it can be, um, the amount of density that it can have, the height of it, and everything in between, and was showing Jason a deal, and I can't remember it totally, but I thought we could get 10 units on it, and Jason uh, was gracious enough to come in and say, no, man, I think if, if you were looking at it from David Weekly's perspective, you could get 20 units on it, and um, that's how you drive land value, and that's how you can make land more valuable, and I remember leaving that meeting going, you know, oh my gosh, I just feel like by meeting with him, I made an extra, you know, whatever yeah. amount of money. But then that kind of pattern kept kept coming up over and over. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, if Jason was on our side of the table, yeah. we could buy more land and know exactly what to do with it. And that was kind of the beginning uh, of our story. Um, talking about urban infill um, in Fort Worth and just in general, what is the kind of the narrative around urban infill? Where, where is it today? Where have you seen it come throughout your career and where are we headed? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously changing and it's been changing since I've been in the industry. It's, uh, it's not new by any means. Cities have been creating urban cores and developing for hundreds of years. And if you go you know, to Europe and even New York, you see it. Um, in, in our market, it has not been as relevant for a long time. There's always been some aspect of it near downtowns, but it, it really, it, it trended out through like the, the 70s and 80s and 90s, especially in Texas. You had these urban cores, but you had more urban sprawl, neighborhoods outside, people wanted the land, they wanted big backyards. Is that because Texas has a ton of land to just keep growing out? Yeah, I mean, that? I think so. And I think it was just, you know, the nature of the time and it was the, the idea of this perfect you know the American dream people were they thought the idea was to have this house with this big backyard and this you know this idea that they learned from their parents and because Texas had all this land there was infinite possibilities to continue to replicate this postage stamp neighborhood which you still see today and people still want that um, but what they what they missed was all the other things about life that people really want like the experience, the walkability, what are they close to, you know, time, how long does it take to get to work, all these things. And as, as time has gone on and the cities develop out, the natural thing happens like you see in cities like New York where it starts to become more of a pain to get back into the city. All the things that are great, the great restaurants, all those things are built towards the urban core. And, and people, you know, as, as generations come through, they start to recognize the things that they want to do and they're attracted to those things and they realize they don't necessarily want to follow the path that was laid out before them. And you start to see people drive back towards the urban core and that's what we're seeing in our market today, I believe, is um, the largest generation that's ever come through um, history that we've seen. Um, Which is who? The millennials. Yeah. And they're starting to buy not even starting, they've been buying for years now, but they're, it's really hitting its stride. And, and we're seeing the patterns and it, it doesn't mean that they're not gonna wanna go buy a house with a big yard someday. It just means that right now in that part of their life cycle, most of them or the majority of them are choosing to move back towards these urban cores, um, which is creating a huge market for 
urban infill development and creating uh, new use types, new product types, um, new zoning categories like the city of Fort Worth has uh, with UR and, and now they're talking about another new one uh, that create these opportunities to create neighborhoods within the urban core while maintaining some sense of community without just letting it run wild with um, us crazy developers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think an important thing to note is in the urban core, there's a finite, in general, in the world, there's a finite amount of land. They're not making more land. Right. And within the urban core, they're definitely, the, the uh, uh, amount of undeveloped land is almost non-existent. Um, and if, you, if you're looking outside of what's been undeveloped, now you're looking at how can we repurpose old buildings? And that's where you're seeing industrial buildings get torn down and townhomes going up or apartment complexes. Um, Fort Worth's supposed to grow from 800,000 to 1.6 million in the next 15 years. Yeah. If the city of Fort Worth, and I think they are adopting a more urban mentality, but I think we can both agree they're, they're, they're a little behind on the race to, to be the best urban core city. Yeah. Um, what are the things that are currently challenging about urban development in Fort Worth? And what are the big, if there was like two or three things that really needed to change as like a, a thesis or from a leadership level at the city, uh, what are those things that would make it easier to develop? Because I would imagine those one of those 800,000 new people a yeah. lot of them are going to be living in the urban areas, which by definition means uh, smaller units, higher density, but way more walkability and mm -hmm. easier commutes to work. And um, I'll follow that up with how technology today is changing all that. But like, what does Fort Worth need to be thinking about? Well, I would say first, I think being on several boards at the city, I sit on a few uh, of these urban committees where this is the topic, and I would say that the city of Fort Worth is thinking about it the right way. I think the city, and I'm talking about the people at the highest level, the, the planners, um, and, and the people that really understand where the city needs to go, and they understand the importance that if we don't make this change, it will have a huge negative impact on the city in the future. And so they are taking proactive steps with like UR and MU1 and MU2 zoning. Which is what? which is the zoning types that allow for this urban development to occur with near existing neighborhoods, essentially. Yeah. Um, but, but the issue is, is that you have politics that overlay the city's desires. So I think what ends up happening a lot is that we as developers see it as the city um, is struggling, they don't understand, or they can't get their stuff together. But there's this overlaying factor of politics which really controls what the city can and cannot do so you have a layer of of city planners and people that understand um exactly what needs to happen but they are their hands are tied with the people that actually make the decisions which are the people that are voted into office and so um, when you have neighborhoods that vote and then you have people that make decisions based on those people that vote for them what ends up happening is you get a few voices that control a lot of the decision making. And those few voices are really um, neighborhoods. And, and, and there's good in that too. So that it is important to understand what the people that are currently here, what they want, what their voice is. But I think what happens is instead of working together to find a solution, what the city does is 
they let those people just grind the system to a halt. And so what we see is slow progress. And so slow that it becomes painful for people like us that is trying to get stuff done every day. Um, and I think ultimately, no matter what, the highest and best use for any area is going to win out. It may take five years longer than it should have, but the buildings will get built, the high density will come, it will happen. What the city of Fort Worth needs to do is understand that there are things that they can make a decision on, that they don't need uh, the neighborhood's uh, input when it's the right thing to do. And I think they get blinded by um, a few voices that are very loud um, to make really big decisions which shouldn't be made based on single individuals' opinions. Um, and so I think there, there's a lot of factors involved in it, but really to answer your question, it's what's the holdup at the city is the politics that drive the decision making. Is there, I mean, if you look and you're like, well, other cities have been successful at this kind yeah. of urban development, is there a point at which, like you said, the city has to understand there are decisions that you have to start making without consensus from yep. everybody in town or we're never going to get anywhere. Change, nobody likes change, um, but often once it happens, they realize it's really not as bad as they thought. I mean, we go through that all the time. All People the time. don't even know what they're complaining about. Right. People just like to have a voice and they like to express their concern and, and like they like to take a stance. And the truth is people get passionate and they get on one side of an issue and they just stick with it. So if we need to get 800,000 more people in here, yeah. we don't necessarily have time to let things take five extra years. No. And, and the truth is, is, is what happens is what's happening here. So what we'll start to see is we've done it the right way, I think, here in the River District, uh, which is a development here in Fort Worth that we're building, which is we took the time to get everyone on board before we ever did anything. We laid out a plan, we did all those things. What happens in areas where you see the slowdown, which really are driving these discussions with these neighborhoods or these zoning districts, right? are these very specific little pockets of town where you have these loud voices, but they're determining what this zoning category is that's working just fine in our area, right? right. We have no issues with it, right. but they're so focused on changing it because they're still two blocks of their little neighborhood which they don't want it to be impacted. And so that's where I think the city, if they realize, like you're making a decision based on one little section of town, which it's already happened right. there, but now you're you're contemplating affecting other areas which don't have an issue with it. Right. Um, so, well, we could talk about I think that one point for a time. <laughs> uh, but yes. one thing we do talk a bunch about, and you know, will be a huge theme across this podcast as we as we go on is um, technology. Jason and I have really built up a thesis and a belief that the urban core. Uh, and the urban uh, centers of the world are going to win, that urban sprawl is dying, uh, moving out to the country is not as much the American dream anymore, moving back in is the dream. It's being shown by what millennials want, what empty nesters are now asking for, and this thesis that, that we've built um, that I'm sure we share with, with other people, but, but think we're early in seeing the vision that the technology in the world that's coming out today is creating moats around these big cities. And so what I mean by that is when you take companies like Uber and Airbnb and 
these there's dog walking apps now and there's dry cleaning pickup apps those apps only work in areas that have large populations and are dense therefore going to these smaller rural suburbs they're not going to exist and so what happens is they're being built for these huge urban centers it's attracting people um, to it, they might not even know it but to move into them because while the price of real estate is more expensive in the urban center they're now being delivered cost efficiencies in other areas of their life better quality of life better time management and savings which we know we're not getting more time um, and it has this potential for these these cities to become these mega hubs i guess my question just is what how is technology driving the future of of these cities and, and in particular um fort worth if there's any comment on that yeah i mean it's basically just what you said i mean it, it's we work on it every day we're de as developers we're constantly thinking about the next project that we're developing and are we putting the technology in it that is going to hold up right are, are we doing something that's forward thinking and we're doing it because we're trying to attract the demographic that's going to move in there and then you take that one step further and you what you just said with the with apps that are designed to basically help cities function better right whether it's a parking app or anything uber and all the things that are existing that is going to continue to drive the mentality of the developer which right. in turn drives the mentality of the buyer or the renter or the person or the business and so it's feeding on itself and you're right it, what is going to happen i think is that people are going to be more and more attractive to the areas where these conveniences are because at the end of the day that's what it is we're talking about time we're talking about the convenience of life how easy it is it how easy is it to live and so when you when you have a choice 20 years from now to live somewhere where you have all these conveniences that are at the touch of your phone would you live here or would you live somewhere where half of those exist or none of those exist? And yep. I think the question that's pretty simple. It's like, you know, if, if you said today, could you live without your iPhone? And the answer is very simple. You, you wouldn't. But 10 years ago, you wouldn't think that that was that you couldn't live without it. But the truth is, is most people couldn't. It's right. how you it's how you operate. Um, so, so it's like come live in the, the urban core, or the urban center for the next 10 years and you'll realize that, that leaving everything that's available to you is going to be much tougher than you thought. That's the key is it's the stickiness of it. It's the, it's the use. And so like the example is like our, our, one of our apartment buildings that we built, which has fully automated systems, the doors and the lights and the locks and all these things. Um, it, it's a fully integrated building into your phone. And so you can operate the building. It starts to learn what time you get home. The door opens as you get close to it. The thermostat turns down when you're driving home from work because it knows you normally come home from work at five. It senses how far you are from the building. That seems like a cool tech thing that people don't think about, but imagine if you lived there for three years and then you moved to a different building that had none of that. You would get irritated every time you had to reach in your pocket to get your keys. You would, have, you would get irritated every time you had to get up and turn the thermostat down. And it doesn't seem like a big deal and most people today will say, that's ridiculous, who cares, it's not that big a deal. But the truth is, if you've ever had a car where you reach for the handle and it automatically unlocks, and then go back to where you have to pull out your, your clicker for your remote and unlock it, watch how irritated you get. Yeah. It's And it's not because we're lazy or whatever, it's time. We realize that that is a waste of our time if there's another technology that exists. Yeah. 
And so I just look at it as human nature will take over. And it's what happens. It's the reason why we all have iPhones. It's human nature takes over in those instances. And you will always go towards what is more convenient for your life, what's easier, what saves you time. And it's the reason why Uber exists. I mean, it's what, you know, Gary Vee talks about all the time. It's, it, it exists because people realize it saves them time. It's easier. Right. I don't have to think about it. Anything in life that does that is going to win out. It's just the, it's the world we live in. And the younger generation lives in a world where things happen in milliseconds. Right. And the they're thought of more wasting adapting. an extra minute is just, to them, feels like a year to right. past generations. And once they experience it, you're right, there will be no going back because they will think, why would I not have that, right? Because it will become the norm. So this is probably why we're buying more real estate in the urban city. <laughs> it's, it, it's definitely a good reason to. Um, what, uh, why do you love Fort Worth? If people that are not from Fort Worth are thinking about moving here, uh, especially big companies or you know, people looking to move here in general, why is this the land of opportunity and, and what, where do you see the biggest opportunities here and, and why, why do you love it and why did it keep you here? Well, I mean, I think wherever you're born, I mean, I was born here, raised yeah. here. It's, it's easy to love where you're from because it's what you know, it's comfortable, it's home, that sort of thing. So to me, that's an obvious reason for me. I've always been here. It's, it's, it's the most familiar place to me. And anytime I go somewhere, it's hard to replicate what you love about home. So um, I've been all over the world and this is still yeah. the best place to live for me. Uh, it's it, in real estate. I think we're super fortunate. What's, you know, in business, what's kept me here and what, you know, lets me see all the value and the upside of what we're doing here is it's just a blessing to be in Texas as as I've grown up and, and then realize what's happening around the world and then watch the growth of the state, not just Dallas for work, but the state in general and watch all the benefits and, and what happens um, as more people come here. And then if you look at Fort Worth and that relationship to what's happened to Texas, you see that we're next to one of the really one of the hubs of the entire country in Dallas which we're really just you know connected to yet we've sort of still lagged behind in terms of uh, the value of the land the price of things the the cost of living the homes but yet if you just go 30 40 minutes to the east everything is more expensive everything costs more every you know and so if you look at that and think of well proximity um, and, and, and how value, uh, how much value there is just 30 minutes to the west, it, to me it's a tremendous upside. And then if you look at how much land there is in this city, uh, I think it's something like uh, 70,000 70, acres. acres, right? So, and you compare that to Dallas, which has like, I don't remember what it was, it was like 19,000 acres or something, or is it maybe even less than that. Uh, it, it's the potential is unlimited and yeah. so now it's just what do we do to capitalize on it what does the city do to capitalize on it and I think it really takes companies like ours that aren't just passive looking at the one next deal making a little money you know actually charging forward deciding what you want to accomplish creating a new district and just making it happen right starting podcasts to talk about the city yeah and then trying to make change yeah that's it the uh, being close to Dallas is the it's it's always been a, a joke that Fort Worth wants to be different than Dallas. 
Um, and I totally get it. it. But but at the same time, it is the probably one of the most valuable things we have going for us. Dallas it is, is a financial hub of the world. It's being created. It's not of the world, but it is one of the top in the world. You're seeing major, major corporations from all over the world start moving their headquarters in here. Uh, the ecosystem in DFW, when you talk about like a super city, is like DFW almost becoming one big, gigantic city. And if at the very least the spillover from what's happening out east happens, it'll have a tremendous impact. Add in a city in Fort Worth that has incredible um, small business passion, a ton of passion for their city. We have um, a great city layout, amazing people. The culture here is, I think, as good as it gets. I've never met anybody that comes to Fort Worth that doesn't like it. And you put all those into play and, and leadership and people that want to see the city um, grow, not just for the sake of growth, but grow to become a better city. We literally sometimes pinch ourselves that Fort Worth really is the land of opportunity and any one month or quarter, it could seem slow, but even if you look over the last 10 years and where we could possibly be 10 years from now, um, I'm not saying we'll be, you know, as big as Dallas or, or whatever, but Dallas is a good blueprint for what could happen here in Fort Worth with, with a couple things happening. And to your point, we're affordable. Yeah. We're like of the five major cities in Texas. We're the most affordable. We have access to DFW Airport. We have tons of land. We are we have great talent. We're in Texas, which the Texas government provides for an amazing uh, business setting. Um, you know, we have border trade. We have port. We have oil out to the west. Uh, there's just all these things going on, and um, you know, I think the next. I, th I think the next 10 to 20 years will, will provide huge opportunity for, for Fort Worthians, for Texans, for DFWians. Um, all right, jumping back to a comment you made earlier, which is one of the things that I admired the most about you was uh, your, um, you tested well for being a great operator, a great manager and leader of people. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea really what culture was or what managing people was before we met. I didn't know about leadership, but I just never knew the, the focus, the time, the attention that it takes to create a world-class culture. I know you and I have spent thousands of hours mm -hmm. just thinking about it, and the Fort Capital that we're building is, is one that at its core attracts the best and brightest people, hopefully, in any industry that we're in, interested in. But where did all that, where did you learn all this stuff? Why is it important? Yeah. Um, and how are you working on it? you know, every day here at Fort. Yep. Well, um, going back to like my first job, there was no culture and it was a job and you worked all day. But then I, when I went to What the, is culture? Like culture is just how you, how you op, how you are every day. Like yeah. what is the office vibe? What do people think about you? What does the company think about itself? What if did, what does the outside world feel when they interact with you? I mean, it's culture is not something. I think people think they can write their culture down, and that's their culture. But the truth, culture is like, what is it when you walk in the office? Right? And it, what do what is it that? And how do other people like you see yourself one way, but how do other people see you? So right. you can say I'm the nicest person in the schoolyard, 
and you can be the biggest dick there is. Right. So just because you believe you're nice doesn't mean your culture is nice. Right. So um, writing it down is nice, but it's what what do you do every day? And so honestly, that's what when I learned like what I thought would be good to try to create a, a culture that really mattered was. When I went to Weekly, the culture, I'd never experienced anything like it, how they in, in just engulf you with this culture. They, you're just, they call it drinking the Kool-Aid. You're sent to Houston, you go through this program, you get tested, you do all these things, and they have, they have uh, you know, cards and things for everything, right? Every aspect of the company, they've thought about it, and, and you realize that it's, you're really like joining this family, and it, fe- it felt like a family. And, and it was, and, and I learned all these things, but you quickly realize like a lot of it was surface level and it was writing and it was the things that I was saying, like you just, it was written down and, and it was all good intentions and, it, and 90% of it was great. But what you realize is over time, and that company was so huge that it was spread out and it gets diluted heavily. And so a lot of it felt insincere. So when you got out to like a team where I was on a team, the, the conversation wasn't the same as what the culture was intended to be. It's almost like you have many cultures depending right. on where you are. And what, what I realized is like, no, the culture is made within the neighborhood. So I think the reason we were so successful in the neighborhoods that I was in and the, the teams that I managed at one point was managing a very, very large team. And we did amazing, but it was because I, I followed through with the David Weekly culture, but I did it our way. Meaning, like, I made sure that the people were happy to come to work every day. I, you know, I listened to them. I understood what each person needed, what made them happy. And so, you know, that's where I learned that there was a lot of different ways to do it. And that patience and understanding people and, and letting people do something that they were passionate about. Or and if they didn't know what they were passionate about, helping them find what they were passionate about. Um, and that can be within their own job. Like, what is it that incentivizes them to get out of bed and come to work every day? And it's not money. It's not money. And so the truth is, is it's the little things. Like, you can discover in one person that really what they need is to be told that they did a great job every two days. And and not not fake, just recognizing what they're doing. Like, recognizing that they did that job and they did it well. Um, so it's little things, but you have to take the time and be patient to understand that every human being that you deal with in a company, and especially as a leader, is a unique individual that has their own perspective and their own reason for getting up every day and their own family and all these things. And, and if, if you don't have that ability to be able to stop and think about that individual and have some empathy towards what they might be feeling it's very hard to create a culture where people really truly trust the leader and want to follow the leader and believe the leader Um, because if they feel that from the leadership then they are all in and that's what really like creates a culture right because once you start from that base then it's like everybody's all in and then you can sort of like it's very easy to be open and honest and have this like ultimate trust and so I give a ton of credit to working at David Weekly. I think that company, their, their philosophy and their thought process and how they built that company is one of the most amazing stories in the United States history of companies. But I would say that it's, it's easy to let it get out of control and we're just fortunate enough that we're small, we're 20-ish people and it's much easier to control that culture and make sure that it is what we want it to be every day. 
Is it's it like, almost impossible to like? It's very hard. I mean, if you I, get to a thousand people, control it the way you did when you were twenty. I mean, I think there's probably people that do it do it well, and I, I would say even David Weekly is one that does it well. But it is almost impossible because the truth is, is once you get three steps away from the main culture, it's very hard for that one person to stay as embedded as this group up here. Right. And it's just, um, it's one of those things I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would ever want to get that big. Yeah. It just it doesn't seem. People, uh, the idea that having, that, that success is attributed to how many people you have in your company, um, it's certainly one way to look at it, but how many people you have that fit your culture is the ultimate amount of success. And if starting your company, it's a focus, it's much easier as you grow to make sure that the right people are, are coming on board, especially as a small company. I think it's, I, I haven't been at a hundred person company, so I can't say it, but I can see what happens with 20, but one person can hijack an entire culture. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things special about Fort uh, that I give Jason just unbelievably full credit for is how much due diligence and upfront work we do to make sure that we're hiring the right people for the company. And then once they're here, delivering on um, creating a place that inspires them to be um, their best self. And like you said, people want recognition, people want uh, the ability to uh, feel like they're in control of the job that they're doing, that they're in control of the results that they're producing. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly want to be paid well, but it's, it's it, I think every study shows it's fourth or fifth on the list. And so um, it's a huge part of, of how we think about Ford and how we operate Ford and um, how the re the main reason we think we'll have a competitive advantage in the future uh, for anything that we get into. What's for anybody that's starting a company or maybe has started a company, what's like, and I think I know the answer because maybe it's what we did, but what is one or two things that, that somebody in the lead could do to basically start the discussion about culture? I think with me, it was Simon Sinek's video yeah. start with why yeah and honestly even even when i joined fort it was actually exciting to me because i'm sitting here thinking i have all this knowledge right and now i don't have to just replicate the knowledge we can take basically pick and choose what we want to use from it and and i you know i had learned a lot of ways to like work through problems and i don't know if you remember early on in those early meetings when we sort of had those first whiteboard meetings with the note deals and we were like trying to filter down to like what our purpose was and and those sort of things so i think what you got to do in the very beginning for a small company is really be open and honest with whatever the group is and get it all on the table in the sense of what what really is it that you want to do what what are you trying to accomplish like what are you getting up to come to work every day for what makes you happy and like us it's not that you solve it day one but you got to get something out there right and and it's going to it's going to morph over time but for us it was things that were affecting us at the time like the Simon Sinek video and things that were think causing us to question why would we do this why are we doing this what's going to get us to the point where we're trying to get to and the truth is is you just got to 
find the questions that are going to allow you to create a place that makes you happy. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, if you're not, if you're starting a company and you're creating a place that you're not happy to come to work to every day, yeah. well, guess what? No one else is going to be happy either. And I think we did a good job of that. And you can look at it as being selfish or, or however you want to look at it. But the truth is, is I had come from a position where I wanted to be happy. You have always been in that position where you were you were an entrepreneur doing only the things that you knew you wanted to do. And we were just fortunate enough to say, we're going to create a place that we want to work at. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. They just get so focused on the work and they think that a lot of the negative stuff that you subject yourself to is just like, you, it's just part of it. And right. the truth is, is it doesn't have to be right. So you can't financially model happiness happiness <laughs> <laughs> yes you can it's priceless i know <laughs> what uh what are some things that are exciting to you about the future uh company wise anything in life tech investment wise just where are we going to see big change and why is it a good yeah. or maybe a negative thing i mean i this is a, a very obvious one well i say it is for for our world it is I don't, maybe for a lot of people it's not but and it's what I've been focused on more recently, but just the use of the blockchain, and I know a lot of people are, use the word blockchain. They use the word blockchain, but they, they if think- If you want to sound smart, say blockchain. Say blockchain. But if you really dig into how it could be applied to real estate, and not even could be, it is being applied to real estate, and the way that we as for Capital are going to apply it as real, in real estate, and the fact that you will be able to document from day one to whenever in the future you decide to sell a property, every single thing that has ever happened on that property is recorded in a, an unbreakable ledger that is validated with a gold stamp, essentially. The value of that is just unbelievable. And, and I think about the, it's like having a perfectly clean history title um, down to when was the AC filter changed? How many times did you do your inspections every year? All those little things, I think people underestimate how we transact real estate today and all the risks that we take. So if you look at it from a risk standpoint, you say, I'm buying this building. You don't really know, let's say you're buying a high rise building downtown. You don't really know all the things that have happened in that building. You can get the reports and the records, but to compile it all and have somebody go through it and figure it all out. But to have all that in a database that can be searched and analyzed through algorithms and artificial intelligence and give you definitive answers on whether it's a good investment or not in a matter of seconds is, I mean, I think we're only a couple of years away from being able to do that. And I think that's going to be. So we look at you right now, we look at real estate for its value, but the world is headed to a place where you have your piece of real estate and then you have all the information that goes with it. Right. And once value starts being attributed to the information that comes with it, to Jason's point, the blockchain is this ledger that tells you everything that's happened in a, in a certain, for a certain asset or a certain anything, it's, it's being documented. You buy a real estate asset, you ask the owner, hey, have you, uh, have you been checking the AC once a year like the warranty says? And they're like, yeah, of course. And very rarely do you say, well, show me all the receipts and, and all the, the, the invoices that came in for when that happened. You just kind of assume that it had happened. Um, the blockchain is going to create a world where that owner will be able to send you 
the information on their blockchain related to that asset and you will be able to see literally to the second everything that ever happened when the tenant complaint came in when the property manager put in the the work order to go fix the sink when the sink was fixed when the invoice came in the five-star review that the tenant gave the property manager for the level of service to the detail all of that will be will be shown and you talk about a property that's been operating for 10 or 15 years you can literally find out anything and the value then is created because you're going to be compared against a building that doesn't have that right so there's an arbitrage to be had over the next decade i think and it may be may may not take a decade uh this technology i think is going to move pretty fast but over the next decade, you're going to be, if you're the first mover to this space, you're going to have a lot of options. One, you're going to have the ability to sell an asset that is going to essentially have a rubber stamp on it that says this asset is better than the, every other asset because right. I have a complete record and you can't prove it on the next one. But what else it's going to do is by doing that, your your asset will be able to be put on the blockchain, which you will be able to then sell pieces of it differently than you can today, right. um, where the traditional model of investing will be opened up to a whole new world where you will be able to buy essentially pieces of real estate through the blockchain, which um, are traditionally illiquid and which have are, no access. Right, which traditionally you can't get out in and out of when you finance a building or you raise equity for a building. That is a done deal for X number of years until that building is sold. Well, now this tokenization of a real estate asset, you will be able to get in and out of that asset much more easily because of the ability to validate the transaction on a split second because it's all held on this uh, blockchain. Yeah, I think... The, the simplest thing that just blew my mind when I was first hearing of this a year or two ago was uh, right now when you buy an asset, you put it under contract, you have to send the contract to the title company. Uh, sorry to all my title company friends, I love you guys and I hope you're working on fixing this problem because it's coming, but you pay title insurance, which is 1% fee that charges uh, that you're charged to basically validate that you own the title and ensure the future buyer that they are gaining title. Any lender requires that. The blockchain will make it to where, uh, to make it just boil it down simply and it's not, there's a little bit more to it, but your the title of your asset will be on a blockchain token. And if Jason wants to buy a building from me, we click a few buttons and it goes, I send the token to a third party validation company. They validate that I'm sending it to Jason. It gets put in Jason's crypto wallet and he now owns my token. There's no fees associated. There's no title fees. There's a perfect chain of record. Um, and that, that 10, $15,000 of title insurance that I saved, that now goes into the owner's pocket or uh, you know, we both get a better deal by him being able to pay a little less, but I still uh, net a little bit more. And um, that, the world of the broker and agent, the world of uh, the contractor, the world of uh, lenders, um, they're all, there's companies all over the country, all over the world being created that are coming at the traditional way we know to do all these things. Yeah. And real estate has traditionally been packed with um, and it's real fees simple. everywhere. Yeah, and it's a real simple concept. The, the concept is that we've, had, we've been building computers for a long time. The computers and the data have grown to a point and they're exponentially growing where they have outsmarted all the systems that we have and they can do them much faster and much more accurate than we ever can. 
and it's that simple. And right. it's not going to go backwards. It's only going to go forwards. I would be remiss to not bring up your workout and eating habits <laughs> and what you have <laughs> always told me. Uh, and I can't remember how you say it, but basically, like, you can do anything you put your mind to. Like, you are in control yeah. of... Yeah. And you've always challenged yourself to, like, the only person... And it's... Jason is... I call him a robot. I've known him for five years. Jason wakes up every morning and works out, and he works out every evening. He eats healthy every single day, and he is so, and it's not that uh, if he wants to add something else into his life, he's very particular about what's able to come into his uh, sphere of influence, but once it's in, it's a very like regimented deal. Yeah. I've really never met too many people like it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just who I've always been. So it's very, it's easy for me to think about as like just normal, but I get it that it's not normal. So uh, it, it goes back to even like when being in home sales or whatever, I've always just worked harder than most people and not, not, not because I'm trying to outwork people. I've just always been the type of person that just always knew I was gonna try harder and so that goes back to being very young and I actually grew up I was not this way I was overweight you know I, I was not a healthy kid but that was just because of lack of influence and that sort of thing growing up knowledge that sort of thing people didn't know what healthy food was and diet and all that stuff when I got to be about 17 or 18 years old I just decided and I, I honestly don't know what sparked it in me but I just decided one day that I was going to get healthy like I literally like got a magazine and started reading and that act literally changed my life because what I did is I said I remember going and getting like protein powder like at 18 years old and making a protein drink and it was not good it was like gross but I drank it and I literally remember thinking like I have the choice I can drink this and get healthy or not like it, it it's not that I it's my choice. It's gross, yes, but I have a choice to drink it. And I got through that. And within like six months, I was in like unbelievable shape. And I mean, to the point where I was like moving to New York, like when I was 19 years old. And so uh, I just realized through that time period that I could control anything in my life by the decisions that I made. Like the choice to pick up a spoon of ice cream and not or whatever you know what I mean pick up a cigarette and smoke it or not and so that little act of being able to control my mind I just it was so freeing to me and yeah. so what I realized is that I can sort of shape my life and my my reality by the choices that I make every day and so that just bled into this whole sort of uh, kind of mindset of the things I do every day are going to affect me one way or another. And so I just started to get in tune with what made me feel good every day and what made me think the best and what made me the smartest and what kept me motivated the most. And it's not been a perfect science, but I, I figured out very early on that the routines of the early morning and the day sort of what gave me what I felt was sort of like my superpower. Um, and so I started doing that when I was probably 18 years old, I guess, where it was really routine, and I have not broke it one day since. I know. It's, it's insane. Uh, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self or anybody listening that uh, is young and 
about to get into the work world and oh, whether they're starting a business or going to work for somebody or anything. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the, the advice I would give myself would probably have not gotten me to where I am, so it's very difficult. But the truth is, is I would say to take as much risk as you possibly can as soon as you can. And that means don't go get out of college or go to college, whatever, and go immediately get a job and try to work your way up to something. Whatever it is you think you want to be and do, go do it. Go take the risk. Go, if it's start a company, if it's to try to go work for somebody in another city or you want to be on TV or whatever it is, you're never going to have a better opportunity to do it right then. So it's no different than like you, like no one told you like go start buying houses or whatever, but had you not taken that risk, you were just lucky enough to just be crazy enough to take the risk. Yeah. Most people are not that crazy and I'm not saying it's meant for everybody, but you don't know what you're capable of unless you put yourself in that position to yeah. go try. And so failing when you're 19, 20, 21, 20, 25, it doesn't matter because you got the rest of your life and you're going to do just fine if you're going to be successful you're going to be successful go take risk figure out what you really want to do and don't settle at that age just don't settle you don't have a wife you don't have kids you might you don't you might jason (laughs) if you're jason you have a wife and a kid that's right but for most people uh you don't have a lot of overhead yet you haven't built a 10-year career where the risk is man i've made it 10 years doing this like should i give up on it and go do what i love I think the number one message we talk about and we tell everybody in here is like, we all, you, nobody is keeping you here at Fort. If you love what you do, we want you here. If you don't love what you're doing, go find it. I can't think of anything more miserable in life than working at a job that I hate to do. Like Johnny Peterson, who runs this podcast with me, TCU student, um, I think we've had conversations about this podcasting is something that he loves it absolutely brings out the best of him I'm sitting here staring at him but he's 22 years old um, and basically have have talked with him enough to say let's give this podcasting thing like a full-time spot he's not married no kid doesn't have a lot of overhead not a lot of expenses there's no better time to to, to start there's no better time to fail than when you're young um, so uh, to anybody listening, if you are um, just at that kind of breaking point of what to do, is like just go do it. And I get people, we get people that come in all the time with ideas, and they're thinking about this, and maybe I'll do this. And again, you don't have to go start a company, go work for somebody, go do anything, but just do it. Everybody thinks there's this magical formula that we're going to deliver to them, and I don't think people like hearing such an easy answer. Is just do it because then the next thing is, well, shit, I got to go do it. Yeah, like there's, it's not like I have to move to New York and or Boston and go to Harvard and then fly here and do this yeah. and then take this program, which easily people could say, oh, well, like I just can't do that. Yeah, um, just getting started is huge. Um, what uh, what defines success? What do you want to accomplish? What are some of your goals over the next like ten years? Um, here at Fort and personally? Um, Well, what defines success is easy for me. I think I've been asked this question like 10 times in the past month. Uh, 
it's super simple. It's being able to get up every day and do exactly what I want to do. It's I mean, freedom. It's freedom. I mean, I, I think in, in, if, if you looked at what I did every day or what you do every day, it from the outside world would not look like freedom. But mentally, it's freedom. And it's, you know, it allows me to get up every morning and just be super motivated to just go. Yep. Um, and I know that's the most important thing to me. Yes. It's been so obvious in my life. So, um, the next 10 years? That's I don't know. What's just like a big personal, <laughs> what's a goal you have in the next 10 years or five years personally or something we're working on here at Ford? Yeah, I think, I mean, on a high level, it's really just to, to make this really the best company that it possibly can be. Yeah. And that doesn't mean be the biggest company. It means we have goals that we've set financially and, and sort of, you know, roughly where we're trying to get to. And uh, that's good. But really, what is the company? What does it feel like? What are the people? Are we Have we built a strong team? Are we still continuing? And really, are we creating something that might be here if we're not here? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it's really just to, to build the best company we possibly can. And what about personally? Personally... I want to work out every day. I want to eat the same food every day. <laughs> Powdered tuna. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, personally, it's just to really spend more time with my family. Um, you know, I think experiencing, you know, experiences really like yeah. good life experiences, whether it's vacations or yeah. whatever. That seems basic, but um, the truth is, is I get so focused in what we're doing at this company every day that I have to remind myself to uh, go enjoy life. I think that's a huge shift and especially in the world today is luxury used to be buying really nice things and I think luxury in today's world is experiencing really cool things. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you've always been huge on that. Um, yeah. As myself, I want to remember things, not necessarily just buy things. Right. This has been awesome. There's probably going to be a follow-up to part two to this over the years. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say. Okay, what's your favorite quote? It's not my favorite, but this is a good one, and it's Charlie Munger. But and I don't know if it's a quote. It's just I literally pulled it out of a book, but and I don't even know if this is exactly right, so I don't know if it's a quote. But it's never take advice from someone that is directly incentivized by the advice that they're giving you. Yeah, and that takes a little bit to sink in, but if you really think about it, advice that someone gives you that they directly benefit from is not almost never the right advice and it's because it's being influenced in the wrong for the wrong reason and so so like if a stock financial guy says like oh you should buy this stock and, and that's in every case and and he's so benefiting by a fee you should Absolutely. at least check fact check it or talk Absolutely. to somebody with an unbiased yeah. perspective and in, in, in charlie's got some great examples of of where he's been burned in that and one of those being in every real estate investment deck he's ever read. Yep. <laughs> okay, what is, is there anybody business-wise or a few people that you like reading about or read the stuff that they put out or have enjoyed learning from out in the business yeah, world? Yeah, uh, Ray Dalio has been mo more recently a huge influence. Uh, um, uh, I'm reading a great book, uh, and I'm oh, through uh, Benjamin Graham, the intelligent yeah, investor. Ben Graham, the intelligent investor, uh, unbelievable book, and it's a very old book. And I found that a lot of the best stuff I've ever read was really old, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. 
Um, and more recently, I mean, I think uh, just inspirational stuff. I think uh, I've read a lot of stuff by Tony Robbins, which has been really impactful. Um, yeah, Tim Ferriss has had some really good stuff. And uh, Gary V. Gary v. Yeah. If you're going to read Intelligent Investor, read Chapter 8. If there's only one chapter to read that's the most easy, I would say read Chapter 8. Yeah. All right, man. All right. Thank you for making my first episode awesome. Yeah. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thanks for listening today. Be on the lookout for new episodes coming soon that we're really excited about. If you'd subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify, and if you really loved it, give us a five-star review. We'd be super grateful. Have a great day.